Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tussauds. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hello. Hi. It's nice to meet you too. <laughs> oh my God, I know. I don't know why I was so surprised to find you there. <laughs> um, you know, some days the small talk comes more easily than others. That's just the truth. <laughs> Ooh, that's a word, Ann. Woo, child. <laughs> what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about a favorite uh, white lady pastime, true crime. crime is quite the agenda like we're gonna do our best in the span of this episode but like honestly i feel like that you could have a whole con i mean there are whole conferences you can fill days and days with analysis and opinions about this genre of books television movies podcasts so real so real so real well i'm gonna be honest which is that i have never understood the appeal of murder tv slash murder podcasts do you really not understand the appeal of it? Or are you just saying that it does not appeal to you? <laughs> You're right. That's overstated a little bit. Well, it's true that it doesn't appeal to me. But part of it is like the idea of um, the kind of true crime super fan who is like, I listen to five different podcasts and like Law and Order is how I calm down at the end of the day or whatever. Like the kind of like some, someone who is who is consuming just like a lot of media across the board that's like focused on predominantly women getting murdered is a thing I actually don't understand. Like, it's hard for me to understand the appeal. Like, and I, I find it so unsettling and not settling. I think that there are a lot of things that are going on here. I personally am not interested in the like spate of podcasts that we have that are about people getting murdered. It's not my preferred way of dealing with that content. Am I heavily invested in the Law and Order series in general? Absolutely. For both murder and non-murder reasons. <laughs> I also think that there is something always like very interesting whenever people say true crime. It's like, what is it really? Because there's 100% the stereotype of like, oh, it's like women getting murdered on TV or whatever. And then even within that whole genre, you have this like kind of thing where people think they're doing something a little bit more elevated where they talk about um, cases that don't necessarily involve women or that, you know, like they're trying to exonerate people or they're like, I'm not I'm not quite sure like what we're saying when we're talking about true crime. It's like sometimes are we all on the same page? Um, right. I guess I would lump like the sort of like air quote highbrow things like serial in with a true crime podcast that is like recycling reporting from somewhere else about a crime that a murder that has happened in a small town. Like, I, I feel like it is like related thematically. You and I are on the same page about this. I cannot speak for everyone, but I think that like generally the contours of that stuff that is interesting to people. I think that for some people, it's truly just a kind of normal, like I wouldn't say obsession, but a kind of normal, like psychological path to pursue. It's not any different than somebody who's like into like doing newspaper clippings, right? It's like, hi, like the, the news prioritizes uh, dead people. So let's do it. I think that there is also the obvious evil is like fascinating to a lot of people. Then there's also the horror show of the 24-7 news cycle, which <laughs> I'm like, you can read about Trump or you can read about true crime. And honestly, sometimes the true crime is less heavy. 
Um, <laughs> fair, fair <laughs> enough. And I guess I don't see the like read about Trump or like read the news as optional, which is like doy. Of course, it's an option. Right. Like, of course, I'm making a choice when I do that. Yeah. But here's one thing I think that is also true about true crime is that for a lot of people, it helps you feel prepared almost. I'm thinking about the interview that I did with Carrie Goldberg a couple of weeks ago, who was that awesome, badass lawyer who deals a lot with like revenge porn. And one of the points that she had made was that being prepared for shitty things to happen to you is uh, a better framework for your life than like being in crisis and having to figure out what to do. And I think that when I think about the women that I know who are super into like murder TV, one of the underlying things there is that they're like, oh, I am most likely to be a victim of murder. So what do I need to know about this? And their entire TV channels that this is their bread and butter is it's like very sick kind of like, let's get you prepared for the hurricane of your life. I also like some people are obviously like adrenaline junkies and it makes them happy. Some people like there was one person that I was talking to that I'm definitely not friends with, but I remember them like really saying how <laughs> caveat. Uh, I'm definitely, yeah, not I'm definitely not person. friends with these people, but we were talking about, I forget like what show it was, but they were very much like, Oh, like part of why I like watching this is because it just like, I'm glad that it's not me. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> this is such a, it's such a morbid thing to say, but you know, I don't know. I also don't feel that true crime is so much different than the, people I know who love to watch horror movies you know how I like cannot fuck with horror movies and I think that some people just want to be scared in a hyper controlled kind of way that's true but like it's really hard for me to get around the idea that there are surviving family members or like survivors who made it out without getting murdered whose story is sort of like being turned into the same kind of entertainment that like a horror movie might be. And like, that's not to say that like everything I consume, I can justify on like this highbrow ethical level, but like it really is like, um, and I know something it was, it, this is something that was discussed a lot with regard to serial because the young woman who was murdered, like her family did not participate in the reporting for that. Right. Like that was like right. very much, a thing that I thought about and I it was written about quite a bit. And when that was dominating a certain type of media consumers <laughs> radar in like, you know, when was that 2015, 2014, you know, I think you're right about the desire to kind of be scared in a controlled way, but it's a weird thing because it is taking that step to realize like, yeah, scared in a controlled way for you. But like, there are real, there are real humans who um, this was not so controlled for. Of course. Is, and I yeah. I obviously like very much agree with you. I think that another like very complicating factor is that sometimes the victims' families are the ones who are keeping the story alive, you know? And that is mm-hmm. for like very specific kind of reasons. Like it is to their advantage to have um, the public talk about them or to have, um, you know, like buzz around like law enforcement and, and things like that. So like I, I, I completely get it. I just think that the conversation about true crime is not as like simple as people make it out to be. But I think that one thing that always makes me feel uneasy and it's true in uh, murder TV. It's true uh, about rape TV. It's true about all sorts of things. Just this impulse to consume other people's suffering without thinking of them. Like my whole obsession with this is obviously like part of it is that like I do want to be prepared. It's just like what am I supposed to do? Somebody murders me. You mean me. like if someone attempts to murder you? Is yeah, that what if you someone mean? attempts to murder me, I'm like you better believe I'm gonna have a fistful of their hair in my hand. Like I'm like you are not getting away with this. But 
I think that I like, and I think a lot about like, oh, what would I want if I were a victim of a crime? I would 1000% not want people uncritically consuming it and like sending memes to their friends about it and talking <laughs> about you know i'm like golden rule should apply here like treat people right like if you, you would not meme right. your best friend's death you should not meme the death of a stranger right and i think like a thing that you alluded to also like very early on about the fact that a lot of this medium now is uh basically recycling other people's reporting and other people's words there is a news function for why we report out murders i do not always agree with how that plays out or how it is done but there like there's a framework for how we do that we don't have a framework for people just like getting on microphones like gabbing about dead people all the time and uh that is i imagine that it is deeply painful for the people that it involves it's also i think disseminates like a a very kind of a like media illiteracy that i really despise and ultimately, I think that it's very heartless. Right. I'm also reminded of the fact that there's a lot of statistics about who is most vulnerable to being murdered by a stranger, by an intimate partner. You know, I mean, like these are things that, while not 100% comprehensive, is something that because it often involves law enforcement, there is some kind of statistic. And then there is also kind of like what we know to be true about whose bodies are endangered in our world or like people who might be more vulnerable to violence as well. And I think it's interesting because I'm not saying I would rather have like a slew of true crime podcasts that are only about trans sex workers being murdered, right? Or like, I, I'm not saying that like I want to shift the genre to be like, you know, hyper-focused like on a different kind of pain. But I sort of, I am aware of the way that a certain perception of who is most at risk informs like perhaps the um, the appetite for taking action or actually protecting people who are in fact most at risk of violence, particularly when it comes to violence from strangers. I mean, let's unpack that a little bit in less like academic words. What are you saying? <laughs> like basically like missing white woman syndrome is what I'm trying to talk about. I know. Well, you know, I don't know. I would push that a little bit further, but I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I also think that if you actually watch a lot of the like um, the content that is produced about this, there are definitely things that are different. So again, I'm not going to touch the podcast because <laughs> that like that's its own wild, wild world. So, um, you, so you're talking about television. So then. like on television, for example, I will say that like Law and, Law and Order SVU is a TV show that is problematic for many, 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 many reasons. 100% deals in like missing white woman syndrome. I have a lot of feelings about how the police is represented on that show. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, like what kind of intervention, like what is the place that the police really has in the system or whatever? Really problematic. Law and Order also, interestingly, gets some things right. A TV show that has consistently been pushing the message that the um, rape kit backlog is a huge problem in this country. Mm. And that's something that I was like, okay, like you are doing this kind of education at mass scale and I'm not seeing it anywhere else. I also think that sometimes when SVU gets it right about the fact that there is, um, they never take it lightly that for a survivor to involve the police to report their crime is something that is going to be easy. They do it in a really shitty way, but I think that that is actually like a, that's a huge takeaway for me where it's like, hi, you are really asking people to give a lot of themselves and you are showing them that the system is broken from start to finish. 
And, right, and that acknowledgement alone is sort of like a proper right, reform. which is like not a thing that most people do. Again, like a show that is like very problematic, but they definitely have like things that they're they're engaging in. To me, it's like it's not an accident that, uh, you know, it's predominantly white women that are interested in like white women crimes when it's really mostly who is more likely to be a victim of violence. Probably someone with a brown body. As we're seeing, at least on social media, a lot of it involves like black men, for example. Where is the spate of podcasts on like police violence against like black men not seeing it? And so it makes me think a lot about like who is allowed to be a sympathetic victim, who is allowed to tell their stories, who really drives this narrative. Because all of the stuff that is happening on TV in these podcasts, people are consuming them. This has huge consequences for how people who are actual victims of crimes are treated and and how they're perceived and how they're pushing that. I just want to say thank you. That is 100% what I was trying to say and way more articulate than my bumbling. But like, and that is why I sort of am like, I don't think that it is bad to have people interested in true stories of what it is like to interact with the criminal justice system. And I think it is in fact like, it's more interesting to say like, how do we take that interest and like widen the lens of like what that could mean in terms of involving people and changing it. Woo, true crime. And I guess like one thing I want to be clear on is that I am not uh, indicting people for consuming this content. I consume this content. In fact, when we had uh, our friend Josie Duffy Rice on the show, I want to say last year, maybe Mm -hmm. um, talking about the criminal justice system. Josie is someone who spends every waking hour trying to make the criminal justice system better and going after prosecutors who are just doing nonsense. And Josie is my number one law and order SVU texting pal. So (laughs) it's not, you know, like that's the point is not like don't consume the content. The point is, are you consuming this content with a critical lens? And also what are you actually doing with the knowledge that you have? And what does it mean for the community that you're in? Because if you're doing it just to, you know, be in your own like weird little fear mongering bubble. Well, you know, news for you, you are probably part of the reason that uh, the criminal justice system is fucked. Right. The question is which true crimes, right? (laughs) Not like true crime, like content is bad. It's just like which true crimes are you consuming? That episode is actually uh, almost just exactly a year old. It's called Seeking Justice and we'll link it in the show notes. And I also want to shout out this podcast, 70 Million, which is like a storytelling focused show about criminal justice reform with a focus on local jails, like a real focus on the community level. So yeah, they've just uh, produced a second season, also worth checking out in addition to Josie's work. Right. And also the podcast Atlanta Monster, that is an investigative journalism podcast about the infamous Atlanta child murders that occurred 1979 to 1981. If you don't want to listen to the podcast, you can watch this new season of Mindhunter, and it's a a big point of it. But you should probably listen to the podcast if you like uh, crime podcasts. Great, Rex. Um, Do you want to take a break? Yes, very much so. (laughs) (laughs) Murder break.
So in this vein, I talked to the reporter and writer Rachel Monroe about her new book. It's called Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. The reason I wanted to have her on the show was to talk about the introduction, where she grapples with some of these ideas about why people are drawn to crime stories and what in the minds of even like particular individuals creates this can't stop thinking about it, can't let it go reaction. And so, um, so yeah, so I spoke to Rachel about her new book and about all of these issues. Rachel, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, I'm so happy to be on this excellent podcast. I am on like a very personal level excited to have you here because I feel like you might be able to explain to me the appeal of true crime. Like you spent a lot of time, like this is something that I have watched grow in popularity, something that I have, and I don't even mean this in a sense of like, oh, I'm like better than it, or I have a moral objection, although that's an interesting conversation. I just mean that like, I just don't love it the way that many, many women clearly do. And I think that's a whole other level of alienation too, when you see people (laughs) not just enjoying something, but um, enjoying it with this extra level of, energy or fascination or hunger. I mean, I did keep coming back to those metaphors of hunger when I was writing the book. Yeah. And so, okay, so maybe talk a little bit about the framing of the book, the questions you set out to answer and the reporting you did to answer those questions. It did really start with my own curiosity about myself. Like, why did these crime stories, which I am, as a reporter, as a aware person in the world, I, I realized that they were a distorted version of reality. Mm-hmm. And yet they would get their hooks in me in a way that other stories wouldn't. And I also was curious, thinking more broadly about why this was such a phenomenon among women. I was aware that most murders are committed by men, most victims of murder are also men, actually, which is something that sometimes surprises people the people working in the world of murder or committing murders. It's like a, it's a male, it's a masculine world. And yet these stories are overwhelmingly consumed by women. So I was just wanted to think about what was drawing so many people to those stories. And then also like going beyond that, what is the effect in the world politically, socially, culturally on a both personal and larger level of um, having certain stories get so much attention um, and certain stories not. And then I did it through looking at four women over the course of like the past century or so who each became fascinated with a crime that didn't happen to her rather than just talking about myself or talking about, you know, some idea of like women as a broad category. Yeah, I mean, I, I know, and this is just like my own feelings upon <laughs> my own feelings as like a kind of distant observer of this yeah. phenomenon, and also just as a reader of your book. Is it seems to me that like a lot of the more interesting conversation about deeper reasons why obsession with you know horrific crimes occurs, like those conversations are interesting, but in the kind of mainstream spaces where these crimes are discussed, so like the message boards at CrimeCon yeah. on podcasts that doesn't seem to be a dominant part of it. And maybe yeah. I'm maybe I'm being dismissive because it's not my genre, but I would love to hear you talk about that. Totally. And I, I think stories about 
other people's pain because some, that's sometimes how I describe this book as a, it's like how do we relate to other people's pain what is our responsibility what is it why are we attracted to it and repelled by it and I think stories about other people's pain can open you up in a way right and connect you to other people's pain and make you realize mm-hmm. like how much vulnerability there is in the world or they can totally shut you down and turn you inward and make you just think about yourself and your own experience and people who are like you yeah, I wish there were more of those conversations, those kind of opening up conversations in these worlds, but I don't see a ton of it either, which is not to say that it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. True crime, like a lot of genres that appeal to women, has gets dismissed a lot as trashy or vapid. Right, trashy voyeurism and yeah, full stop. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that when something has been dismissed, it's really easy to retreat into a kind of defensiveness mm-hmm. You know, and anytime criticism or critique or questioning is brought up to just to want to like double down and not allow any of that. But I think good criticism is a form of like great love and respect. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I hope I tend to think that I wish there was more space for that. Yeah, it's um. It's funny that you bring up good criticism because I really loved your review of the My Favorite Murder Women's book. And it felt, I kept wondering if I I was like, is she holding back? (laughs) Does she she really want to indict like kind of, not that they are the only podcast that does this, but like, you know, wondering whether you, they are an appropriate vector for a a certain type of critique. Yeah. Well, I did that. That was actually my first instinct I had not listened to the podcast, I think, when I was writing the book. Do you listen to any of the 10 million true crime podcasts? I have listened to a handful of them, but I listen to like the, the kind of mini series ones that uh-huh. are like eight episodes. Um, but the ones that are just like every week, uh, yeah. I can't. Like a new case every week. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was just too much. It was like writing this book was like eating pizza every day for three years. And now I can't, mm-hmm. I kind of can't look at pizza. Sorry, I But I listened to the, <laughs> uh, yeah, I listened to the, podcast when I was reviewing that book and my immediate instinct was like oh this is terrible and wanting to write something very critical but then I realized part of my motivation I think if I wrote that that would be me drawing a line and being like they're on the other side Mm -hmm. of this line and what they're doing is bad and I'm on this side and I'm I'm good I'm doing I'm doing this in a virtuous way I'm Mm -hmm. not that and and I had a lot of friends and family members who I really like and respect who love that podcast when I was writing I was literally working on that review and a friend of mine came into the coffee shop and was wearing a stay sexy don't get murdered sweatshirt and I was like oh my god I'm writing I'm writing a review of their book and then she was like I've got the necklace too and um and I so I it felt important to me to write a review that wouldn't be insulting to Mm -hmm. her as a person who I respect and care about and who gets something from this, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's it's easy. It seemed like it would have been easier in a way to condemn it and, and write it off. But I was like, is there a way to critique this that also encompasses the fact that this is meaningful to her? Yeah. And, you know, and to the point of drawing a line, I mean, lines get blurry really, really fast. I yeah. mean, like the difference between someone who's in the role of like breaking news newspaper editor or like local TV person, 
enacting the classic if it bleeds it leads yeah like yes there's a guise of news but like they say that because people are interested in things that are like horrible you know what i mean it really that is the underlying motivation is still entertainment and like i don't even know what to call the other people's pain phenomenon if maybe to like put it in your in in your terms um playing out in so many different contexts and you would think that at this point like this is the other thing i kept thinking reading your book is like you'd think that in this moment there would be less appetite for this than ever because like not i mean the news has always been full of horrors but i think like people are feeling people who are relatively safe in the day-to-day are feeling overwhelmed and threatened in a new way and i think i'm speaking specifically about like our demo of like 30 something cis white women yeah um yeah but i think that's in a way it makes total sense as to why this is happening now because you have these these threats that um that i feel i guess are kind of ambient and abstract and i feel like terrible political movements and climate change and that vague end of the world feeling and yet at the on a day-to-day level, my life is like mm-hmm. mostly fine and comfortable. And so these stories, I think, speak to a kind of threat. They speak to that part of us that feels threatened or vulnerable. But the villain is, rather than enormous systems, the villain is a bad dude. Mm-hmm. And you can catch him. And so it speaks to those anxieties, but lets you feel, at least in a momentary way, a kind of relief or closure. But then, of course, it doesn't really mm-hmm. assuage anything. And so you need another one and another one and another one. I think that's why it, when it starts to feel compulsive. I think it's very interesting that we are at this moment when the world feels really precarious. The violent crime right, is basically at the lowest that it has ever been been and I think that that gets left out of the discussion a lot when we're steeping in these stories of violence and and some of that has to do with media maybe and how stories of terrible things that happened a thousand miles away are now like really available to us Mm -hmm. in the book I write about this Pew study where they ask people every year do you feel like the crime rate is is going up or down and and while the, the trends have been since 91 or whenever like a steady precipitous decline almost every year people think that crime is going up Mm. and that is also something that happens in these podcasts where you particularly the ones that are retreading crimes from the 70s and the 80s and the 90s um and it gets kind of blurred in this way where people's sense of where danger is or who is vulnerable or what the actual risk in the world is, it gets kind of fuzzy or distorted from reality. Right. The fact that men are the majority of murder victims, the fact that violent crime is basically the lowest it has been, you know, for generations. Like these things need to be repeated when we're talking about true crime. Right. I mean, right. And it's the... the difference between other people's pain that becomes like a sense of, oh my God, the world is closing in and crime is getting worse. Yeah. And then there's like other people's pain, like, you know, maybe like a, a demographic that we don't see on TV all the time right. where it's more like, oh, distant statistic. Like, you know, in some ways 
I mean, I would never argue it's a privilege to have something horrific and violent that happened to you turned into entertainment fodder. Yeah. But there is sort of a lesson there too about the relative safety and privilege of consumers of these stories versus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, and I think the thing that's really complicated is that it's this overlapping zone of privilege and vulnerability where white women have our vulnerability kind of over represented. Yes. Overstated. And, mm-hmm. and that is not purely a privilege because I think that it um, worms its way into your head and like, really complicated ways but it is more of a privilege than having your vulnerability erased or not considered important or not considered real I just realized I hadn't asked you in terms of the crime con audience, in terms of what you know about the consuming audience for these stories. Is it mostly white women? I wasn't really able to have any like clear stats about that. So all I can say is that from the audience that I saw at crime con and from what people see at the, my favorite murder events, Mm -hmm. it does tend to be white women but i also know anecdotally that Mm -hmm. it is the audience is not homogenous um right but definitely a crime con was like overwhelmingly young white women Mm -hmm. and i guess it's sort of aside from questions of audience which might be harder to have some definitive statistic about like we can look at the stories that are shared as part of true crime and see some similarities among the victims in those stories right right and then it becomes this vicious circle where um if if Empathy is one of the engines that's that's running this. Like, I look at uh, these stories are appealing to me because they represent somebody's pain who makes me think about my own pain. We can look at who's represented in those stories and then assume, make assumptions maybe about the audience. They're at least intended audience, right. um, whether they're hitting in the way that they intend to is, I guess, another question. But yeah. I was thinking about the earlier phenomenon before the current moment because mm-hmm. that was one of the other fun things about writing the book was. Um, getting to write about beyond just the current moment and and how these things have played out like it's not just a contemporary phenomenon right and also you really had to be even more intensely obsessed with a murder to get info about it in yeah the, in the pre-wikipedia yeah you really had to decades. Mean it. but just like these hugely popular magazines like true detective mm-hmm. but they would sell millions of copies on the newsstand and it not was an hbo show yeah a, right a, a magazine uh, yes exactly <laughs> and this is in the like 40s and 50s and it's so interesting at this time when women are particularly white women are starting to have more autonomy more women living alone separate from families working you have this intense cultural obsession with like stories of terrible things happening to women mm-hmm. basically like wouldn't they get in a car with the wrong guy you're walking down the street and so um some of the message there is like telling women all the terrible things that can happen to them yeah. and and fetishizing that there was always almost always models on the cover of true detective so they they didn't actually look at all representative of uh, sure. of the victims but they were it was very sexualized like these women who were kind of tied up and and frightened um and this was this was huge mass entertainment for men and women um these stories of like the bad things that happen. Right. The original stay sexy and don't get murdered. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'm curious about 
the other before i let you go the other works they could be books or not books that informed the way that you approached yours i'm curious about whether they are kind of crime books air quoting or mm -hmm. whether you kind of you had some influences and inspiration that were from beyond the world of voyeuristic murder sure um in terms of like crime books i thought i really I remember reading Robert Kolker's book, Lost Girls. Mm -hmm. Do you know that book? I do. Give like the one line. Yeah. And it's about a unsolved series of murders in Long Island, I believe. And because it's unsolved there, it's, it's kind of really nice. He can't obsess about the psychology of the killer because we don't know who he is. And instead it's this focus on the, on the women who were the victims. And it ends up being a book about like sex work and the really precarious position that some sex workers are put in because of just the financial incentives and the way that the justice system plays out and all of these ways that these women kind of were made vulnerable or not listened to. Mm -hmm. And so that I was like, oh, this is this is a way that true crime can become like sociology in a way and can have this um, like acknowledge this political dimension mm -hmm. of these stories and not just make it like a fable about evil and good. Mm -hmm. um, right. It's structural. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like why these women who were much more demographically representative than, you know, the cheerleader. Um, demographically representative of women victim, who were disproportionately. Of, yeah, women who were, yeah, mm -hmm. women who were victims of crime or serial killers particularly. Mm -hmm. If our listeners want to find your work, or this book, where should we point them? The book should be available wherever fine books are sold, Great. I suppose. My website is rachel-monroe.com. And I'm on Twitter, too much probably, mm. at, at Rach Monroe. Yay, Thanks thank for you. being on the show. Oh, thank you so much. Woo, thinking deeper, thinking deeper about the things we consume obsessively and why. Woo, girl, see you at Murder Town. Oh my God, don't, I don't want to see you at Murder Town. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see you at a live town. I want to see you like in my texts and like in person and thriving. I do not want to see you at murder town. Um, are you one of these people like me who thinks about dying all the time or no? I mean, I do think about dying, but honestly, like I think about dying in the sense of like, I'm going to fall down a flight of stairs and break my neck. Like I, they're like Russian doll style deaths. Like I don't think about like, I'm going to get murdered death. That's what I was going to say. I think about dying constantly 24 seven. I have every scenario. I'm convinced that it's going to be one of these like humiliating deaths where they'll be like, there was a pencil sharpener involved, like something stupid. You know how oh, every completely. year, every year they publish those and they're like seven people died from glue and then four people died died from like a, like it's always that thing i'm like i'm gonna be one of these like humiliating ones but murder never crosses my mind not because i don't think that i couldn't be murdered i just think that there are so many other ways that people die all of the time totally i mean okay first of all i think all the time i am rarely on a piece of gym equipment but if i am i think about having an aneurysm on it and then dying flopped over the piece of gym equipment i think about that with regularity <sighs> that's um, real that happens to people it does. And then I also, um, this is, this is why I don't cross like between the cross lights, especially in a city like Los Angeles, I will always like cross at the light because I'm convinced that I'm going to get hit by a car as a pedestrian. So yeah, those are my two like, yeah, popular, keep me up at night. popular ways. I'm telling popular you. Popular deaths. People, people, 
people do die in very pedestrian ways. It's just literally, very, uh, literally pedestrian, <laughs> very pedestrian ways. Murder is a, uh, you know, I don't know. It just, it annoys me also because there is so much danger lurking and all this stuff. But, um, I just think that the attention that we give it, that we give it is so outsized compared to what is actually happening. Right. And speaking of outsize, I think that there is a reason why I don't think about it as much, which is like, I'm a really big body to dispose of. Like if you are roving around for a murder victim, I'm like, I just, there is someone easier to put in a trunk than my frame. Like, and I think about that, like, and that is not like to shame anybody with any kind of body, but I, I just, I just want to recognize my big body priv when it comes to like not fearing a stranger in a dark alley. And this is how I know that you don't watch any murder TV. First of all, the technology has vastly improved. Um, there are so many Wait, ways for to killing big women um for disposing of bodies in general i um this is my most enduring feminist belief i have like most in like it's not like it's not women are are equal to men like mm -mm. my most enduring belief is that there are probably the same number of women serial killers as men serial killers but they never catch the women because the women are smarter because they have periods and they know how to get rid of blood (laughs) Okay, that's so, so me. Now- <laughs> that's me. Zero basis and evidence. I because yeah, it's like my murder TV is my my obsession. Obsession is serial killers, and every time I'm watching, I'm like, where are the ladies? Are there no ladies, or are they not getting caught? And I'm believing that they're not getting caught. Well, there is that movie where like Charlize Theron was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna be like not pretty and try to get an Oscar from a long time, like pre. Shout out pre to Mad Monster. Max. Shout out Monster, to Monster. That's what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Charlize Africa, um, which everybody forgets. That's her real Instagram handle, Charlize Africa. Uh, wow. She is South African um, for Monster. Sure, but the whole continent, though? like, <laughs> Listen, Charlize Africa. I'm going to let her have it. Um, murder. Something I uh, I would like to think about less, even though it happens. And I also, you know, I also want to really acknowledge that it is something that also happens to a lot of people. And uh, if you're listening to this and it's hard, I'm sorry about that. I was going to say stay sexy and don't have an aneurysm on the elliptical, but it feels <laughs> it feels not right after that very sincere and warranted comment. So maybe we should just say, I'll see you on the internet. <laughs> just stay sexy. See you on the internet. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. Our associate producer is Jordan Bailey. And this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. <laughs>